So our first uh, speaker is Shelley Welton. She's an assistant professor of law at the University of South Carolina School of Law. Her research focuses on how climate change is transforming energy and environmental law and governance. She was one of the first legal scholars to write about the distributional impacts of a clean energy transition, and that's what we want to talk about with her today. So thanks for being here, Shelley. Thanks for having me. Um, in several of your papers over the last few years, you have addressed the concepts of energy poverty, energy democracy, energy justice. Um, can you just briefly explain what you mean by those terms? Sure. Um, so there's no single agreed upon definition of energy poverty. Uh, but the basic idea is having energy bills that are so high that it makes it hard to meet your other life needs. So energy researchers often talk about this in terms of energy burdens, right? How much of what percentage of your income you're spending on energy in particular. Uh, and typically, a lot of people say if you're spending more than 6% by some measures, 10% by other measures, that's an energy burden that makes it hard to meet your other basic life needs, right? At some point, you're trading off decisions about heating or eating, and that's really what you want to try and avoid. Um, so that's energy poverty. Uh, energy democracy. It's a term we hear a lot these days. I think it gets thrown around very casually in conversations about what the energy future should look like. Let's democratize energy. Um, and so I've tried to do some thinking about what we really mean when we say energy democracy. And I think we mean a bunch of different things. Um, so I think it can mean this concept of giving consumers more choice in where they get their energy from. So that's things like empowering consumers as purchasers to buy solar panels or um, choose a green energy supplier or move to a retail choice model. Um, I see that as sort of the least democratic of concepts of energy democracy. It's really about using your leverage in the market. Um, there's a second conception that is really about localism. right? People, a lot of people, when they say energy democracy, they mean giving more say to communities in how they get their energy. And you see this in places like California's big movement towards community choice aggregation, where communities can vote together to take over their energy purchasing. And then there's a third conception, which I think maybe gets the least play these days, but it's just good old-fashioned participation in government, right? So participatory democracy, going to your relevant agencies, your public utility commission, um, and having your views heard about what you want the system to look like. Um, I'm missing one. Energy justice. Mm -hmm. Uh, so, again, I think this is a contested term, and I don't know exactly how to give it a concise definition, but questions of how we should balance um, distributed costs within the energy system and how we pay for the system we have and what's a fair way to distribute the benefits and burdens of energy, sort of as a broad overarching concept, I'd say. On the second term, uh, energy democracy, you, you've written a lot about participation and modes of participation, particularly for poorer consumers, people on the lower end of the socioeconomic scale. Can you elaborate a little bit more about what you mean by participation or opportunities for participation for that segment of customers? Yeah. So, I mean, one thing I'll say about participation in energy governance is I, it's just not super realistic, I don't think, to ask a lot of everyday consumers, particularly low-income consumers, to engage at the level of regulatory governance, right? Like, we're not going to have people going to their PUC and making sophisticated arguments about what the system should look like. 
Um, so I've been a proponent of trying to think of ways outside of that for people to participate. Um, and I think one thing that we're seeing is a lot more movement towards trying to bring some energy justice into consumer choice, by which I mean more programs to get low-income families, households, buildings, um, the same kind of opportunities that we give to homeowners that are affluent enough to afford their own solar systems, right? So programs that bring things like rooftop solar to low-income uh, households and buildings. Um, and then there's also these movements towards things like uh, community renewables where you don't have to actually own the structure on which you're putting the energy. Um, so you could have you know, a big solar garden is what they're often called, and the ability for lots of people to buy shares. Uh, I think this is I think this is important that if we're going to go down the road of asking consumers to to be a force in the energy transition, then we should be working to broaden access. I've also though raised questions about sort of the limitations of this model, right? You're still asking people to buy into a subscription service. As the data are coming in about community energy, it doesn't look like low-income households are the primary taker-uppers. That is not a good word to use. Edit that out. <laughs> primary users of community energy services. Okay. Um, a number of your papers, and we're going to link your papers along with this, this file, but a number of your papers have addressed the fairness debate over net metering. Um, there are critics of net metering who argue that uh, it is regressive and that it leaves... Uh, to relatively poorer customers, a larger share of covering the costs of operating the grid. And there are other critics who say that it, it is a policy that favors developing a more expensive type of solar power since utility-scale solar is a lot cheaper than, mm -hmm. than rooftop solar. And I want to get your thoughts on those issues. Yeah, this has been a huge controversy, right? Almost every state in the country has or has had recently an active docket about this. And I think the first thing to acknowledge in this debate is that utilities are raising a lot of these arguments, and I think that they're raising them often in self-serving ways. Um, so you hear utilities bringing up this regressivity concern when I think a lot of what they're trying to do is protect their bottom line. So I think it's gotten, it's gotten a lot of pushback from environmentalists in part because of the messenger. But I guess what I would say is I want to analytically separate the question from the person that's raising the issue. And I think if you do that, I think utilities are raising an interesting and important fundamental question about how we want to fund the massive transition that we have going forward. Uh, right? Like basically what net metering and similar structures do when you're recovering the cost through volumetric rates and then letting some consumers opt out of having these volumetric rates is ask whatever ratepayers are staying tied to the grid to shoulder the burden of most of the costs of the transition. Um, and I think it's a really important question going forward, whether we think that's a model that is fair and makes sense and is sustainable or not. Um, on the particularities, sort of the empirics of the net metering debate, I kind of see net metering and the whole controversy that it's caused across the country as like, a harbinger of what's to come more than a totally empirically valid debate at the current moment, right? Like if you look at some of the most reputable studies, net metering is not causing an enormous cost shift from participants to non-participants at the current moment, um, except in maybe a couple places with really high penetration of solar power. Um, 
and, and how that cost shift works depends a lot on how many people are putting rooftop solar on and sort of the particularities of the grid in any given place. Lots of places, when you run the numbers, it looks like at least in the early stages, net metering provides net benefits to all the users of the grid because it defers transmission and distribution. It has all of these environmental benefits that often get priced in. We can talk about that. Um, but I do think going forward, right, if we're going to try to figure out some way to fund a massive transition to clean energy, and the way that you help consumers manage those costs is you say you can put solar panels on your roof or you can uptake uh, fancy new appliances that will adjust to the price of electricity or all kinds of ways in which you need some capital in order to be a part of managing your energy bill. I think in that way, we're, these are really important questions to ask about who we want to bear the brunt of the cost of the transition um, and who we let sort of um, opt out of being a part of the structure of paying for it. Yes, yeah, so let me follow up on a couple of those things. So yeah. one of the things you said was that it matters. There's not one answer for every place, right, so that it depends on where you are. Um, and that seems to be a theme that runs throughout a lot of electricity policy anyway. Yeah. That we, generalizing about the grid is very difficult for at least at a nationwide level and certainly even at the smaller levels than that. Um, and so uh, part of what I hear you saying is that, you know, so far it's basically a low stakes thing, right? That, that you're, e even if you have, even if you compensate adopters of rooftop solar at a rate that's much higher than you compensate wholesale sellers of utility scale solar, um, and even if you're shifting some grid costs to the rest of the rate payers, the numbers are small uh, so far. And so it's not something that's terribly concerning until the numbers get big. Is that, is that a fair way of restating what you said? I think that's fair, yeah. Okay. What about the idea, one thing you didn't address, what about the idea of uh, essentially taking up or dis deferring or deterring investment in utility scale solar? Yeah, this is a hard one, right? There is a fundamental trade-off at work um, if you decide that you want to go with distributed energy to the extent that the numbers don't bear out that deferred transmission and distribution and other benefits of being more local are cheaper than utility scale, then it's a trade-off. And I guess what I would say is that's a trade-off that I'm comfortable with a particular place deciding to make if you trust that the governance structure is taking into account the relevant variables, right? Like you might well think as a particular location that you're not interested in having an industrial scale renewable landscape uh, and all of the transmission lines that it's going to require. And you'd rather pay a little bit more to have more distributed energy on the system. And I think that's a fair trade-off to make. I just would want the discussion about it to be as democratic and fulsome as possible um, in making that trade-off and, and transparent about what's at stake, right? You're choosing a more expensive system in order to get some other values embedded in the system. Yeah, and since we're, I mean, we're sort of seeing a lot of that discussion happening in a variety of ways, and maybe as public utility commissions learn more about these issues, their thinking changes over time. Some places have switched from net metering to uh, solar tariffs, mm -hmm. things like that. And then, But then on the other hand, you see things like this referendum in Florida where the debate got really confused for voters. Mm -hmm. That's a form of participation, right, and democratic decision-making, but a lot of people were thought that the entire process was, like a lot of referenda, was not terribly rational. 
Referenda are a tricky democratic yeah. mechanism, particularly when you have a lot of utility funding floating in the background, which I think is the Florida story. Yeah. Um, let me uh, switch gears a little bit and uh, ask you to look into your crystal ball, because you've written a lot, is the several um, really important articles about this topic, and so you've thought a lot about it. Um, uh, if you were the energy czar with absolute power, over these questions, how big a role should distributed energy resources play in a, a transition to a much cleaner energy grid of the future? And let me add one follow-up to that. And how would you address the questions we've been discussing about the distribution of the cost burdens of, of managing the grid? Mm-hmm. So. This is a hard question for me to answer in part because I think a lot of my writing pushes back against the concept of anything like an energy czar, right? If you think that if you think that these answers should be arrived at democratically, uh, then I, I almost resist the notion that you have some sort of central planner with perfect oversight that should be making these decisions. And part of the reason I say that is some of these are very technocratic decisions. You have to have technocratic expertise to manage this transition. But a lot of them aren't. A lot of them are questions about how we want our communities to look. And so I would almost say more important to me than the particular answer to this question is getting the right governance structures in place that we trust to have robust, healthy debates about what the balance we want to strike is. Um, That said, I think as we move towards more aggressive renewables targets, we're going to see a substantial amount of large utility-scale infrastructure come into place because it is cheaper, um, and there's going to be cost pressures as we move towards these really ambitious 100% by 2045 targets, for example, which California and Hawaii now both have in place. Can I ask you to focus in on, back once again, for sort of to wrap up on the, the sort of poorer segment of the customer base as, as we talk about that transition? How do you see them being protected? Or are you worried about them being protected? Or are states doing a good job already of protecting them? Yeah. So especially, I think, if we keep in place structures like net metering or other structures that essentially give you a lot of power to manage your utility bill through in home investment, right, things that you buy and bring into your house to keep your bills low. I do worry that this ratepayer-funded transition model is going to be put under a lot of stress, right? Ever since the 1970s, at least, um, we've had this phenomenon that Richard Posner called taxation by regulation, where we essentially import a lot of our social values into the rate structure and put these charges on people's bills and into their volumetric rates that represent social goods, things that we've decided as a society we desire out of the grid, right? So things like energy efficiency and low-income affordability charges. Um, And the more you let affluent customers opt out of the system, uh, the more you sort of squeeze a smaller segment of your rate payers with all of these charges, unless you figure out how to restructure and ask what charges should be universal and everyone should pay them, irrespective of what other things they've invested in. And I think we're going to have to have that conversation at some point. I don't think it necessarily needs to happen now in all places. Like the reason that people like net metering is it's simple and it gives people confidence to put rooftop solar on. And I think there's places at the stage of their transition where that makes sense. But eventually, I think we're going to have to have a bigger conversation about uh, whether the rate base makes sense as a place to import all of these value considerations and pay for them. All right. Thanks very much. Um,